Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. Suppose you decide to pursue a profession like lawyer, accountant, doctor, or dentist. Does this mean you'll have a predictable, smooth career from the day you start practicing until the day you retire? Not necessarily. You still may experience curves, some planned and others unplanned, like our guest today. Welcome to Career Curves, where we talk to people who have interesting careers and explore how they got where they are. I'm your host, Beth Davies. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Marcus Watson, who graduated from dental school in 1995. After beginning his career rather traditionally, he made some less traditional moves, including working in a nonprofit health center, starting his own practice, and launching an all-natural, organic, fluoride-free toothpaste. Why he made the moves he made is quite an interesting story. I'm excited to be here with Marcus and to have him tell us about his journey. So welcome, Marcus. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by getting to know the younger you. So tell me this, when you were a child and people asked you that question that children are asked all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you answer dentist to that question? Uh, no, because uh, growing up, dentistry was the furthest thing from my mind. I didn't even think about dentistry until I would say in my mid-20s. So growing up, I uh, played a lot with chemistry sets. I knew I was going to be a chemist or a scientist, things like that. Were there other scientists in your family when you were growing up? Absolutely not. It, it just came with my drive that I had towards the science. Also, when you're a child growing up, you really don't know what you want to be. You really don't know what you want to do. But then when you get like that, that response from adults or teachers, they give you the shake, the nod in the head, the, oh, great, you're going to be a scientist. So I think that along the way helps to carve out what kids want to be. Is that an acceptable thing? You know, you start at an early age and you get that approval, approval, basically. Yes. And so I think that's where the chemistry scientists stemmed from. Tell me about the messages that your parents were giving you when you were a child about what you should be when you grew up. Well, I was born in New Jersey, and then we moved to New York, then we moved to Boston. So we moved around a lot. Uh, My mom was basically one of those strong, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to create the world how I want to create it. She had four kids, four different men. And she was a single parent, and she worked her tail off. She was a secretary at the New York Times. She was secretary for Newsday in the editorial. Then um, she managed a, a funeral home in Boston, and then she ended up in, as a secretary in the editorial paper of uh, the Boston Globe. So she was work, 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 work. And I got a lot of that from her and sort of my brothers and sisters. So it was, uh, you're going to get up in the morning, I go to work, you guys go to school. I think we 
We all were just geared towards getting good grades, making sure we were well behaved because you, it's like this, uh, you're managing yourself. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys really had a lot of respect for her and how hard she was working and that therefore a, we have a duty to take care of ourselves and be responsible. Is that? Yes. Basically she created little soldiers. So for instance, she sent out a very clear message where you're going to college I don't know what for, but you're going to go and you're going to graduate. So it was just normal. It was like everyone else is going to college. I'll be going to college too. What were you initially thinking you were going to major in in college and where did you go? From high school on, I knew I was great in science. So when I was going to college, I knew I was going to go for biotechnology. So there was a few schools um, Rochester Institute of Technology in New York, uh, Monmouth College, or now Monmouth University in New Jersey, and then they had MIT. Well, did not apply to MIT. I wanted to get the hell out of Boston. I wanted to be on my own. So I moved to New Jersey to go to Monmouth University because I had cousins there in New Jersey. I had an aunt in New Jersey. It was close to New York. I liked to hang out a lot growing up. Like it was the 80s. I wanted to dance all the time and, you know, live forever and live. So anyway, I went to Monmouth College in New Jersey. That was one short year, unsuccessful. I hated the university, hated the students. I hated the whole setup. It was beautiful university. They filmed Annie there, but it was basically way out in the woods It was like an hour away from New York City. I get there, and it was just a really horrible fit for me, especially when I found out most students didn't even go to New York, which was an hour away. I'm like, what do you mean we're not going to go to New York and hang out? You know, the legal drinking age was like 17. I was like, oh, we can drink. We can go to New York. We can have fun. So I ended up moving back to Boston. Um, I had a best buddy that went to Harvard, a friend that went to Boston University, and another friend that went to uh, Berkeley Performing Arts School in Boston. So we all moved in together, and I worked part-time. I was big on not having debt because I knew I would have to pay that debt off myself, and I learned that from Monmouth College when those student loans were coming in. And uh, so I wanted to make sure I worked part-time, sometimes full-time, I took a class here, a class there, and that just went on. And I really enjoyed life. I traveled a lot at that time. Again, it but at this point, you really 80s. weren't a full-time student. No, I was. I went to Northeastern, and I went to UMass Boston, and I would sort out what classes I needed to take to actually have my major met with the cheapest available classes that I could pay for. So I wasn't really in a rush. I was really just enjoying life. In the back of my mind, I knew I was going to go to graduate school. I knew I was going to be a biotechnologist. I knew I would work in a firm. So that was the plan. Were you using any of those jobs to experiment with the field that you were studying? Yeah. So it's funny that you should bring that up because What happened for me, that turning point, that curve, as you call it, was I worked in a biotech office, and I also worked part-time as a dental assistant, and I just hated that biotech job. 
I went in there every day. I knew I was good at it. And I was just so frustrated with the lack of emotion, I would say, that was in that, you know, the office. It was lab set up. Everyone was sterile. No one spoke to each other. You're just doing experiment after experiment after experiment. It was basically a reality check on this is what you may do. Yeah. And so here you are saying, I like some life in my life. I like some human interaction. I like some dynamic. It's what made Monmouth not the right place for you. And here you are in a lab that is also feeling devoid of life. It was it, For me, it was devoid of everything I lived for. But who knew? I didn't know before I stepped into that, that work environment. Then on the other hand, I'm a part-time dental assistant, and I'm loving it. I see that the interaction with people um, are happening. This The staff is a community. I'm getting to see how you bridge business and science together. I'm seeing like uh, it, like basically instant gratification person comes in, they need work done, it's done. Where biochemistry, you may never see the light of day of what you're working on. So yeah, it was my my wake-up call. How did you get that job at the dental office since it wasn't even something on your radar as a, as a career? How did you fall into it? So during this taking classes and not being a full-time student, I was working in whatever environment I could work in. I had rent to pay, I had plane tickets to buy, the bar was calling me, the dance hall was calling me. So I was just sort of picking up any jobs that I could find to make sure that I, you know, sustained my lifestyle, to make sure that I paid for those classes and make sure that I got those grades that I needed to get to what I thought was towards graduate school. So I ended up in that uh, dental assistant job because the oral surgeon that pulled my teeth in Boston when I was like 17 or 18 years old, I ran into him on the street one day and he told me he was looking for a dental assistant. So I went over there. And back in the 80s, you were trained in the office environment. There wasn't a school for dental assistants. There was barely... Um, a school for hygienists. Most of those jobs, you're trained by the dentist. So I went in there and, and absolutely loved it. So what did you then do with this piece of information of, I've got these two jobs, one that is sucking the life out of me and one that's infusing me with energy. What what did you do with that information? Yeah, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a little bit manic. So I then decided in January or February, something like that, that I was going to go to dental school. And I didn't have an undergraduate degree. I was working part-time at different places. And I said to myself, well, you know what? I'm going to apply to some dental schools, early admission. I'm sure I'll get rejected, but then that will create a pathway for me to figure out what I need to do in order to get into the schools that I want to get into. And then I said, I just wanted to apply to New York City and in Washington, D.C., because I said, you know, I don't I don't want to end up with that same Monmouth College experience. So I 
I said, I'm going to apply to cities where I've been, where I have friends, where I have relatives, where I can enjoy life along with school. But I was just basically setting myself up for the big turn down. Well, then they'll give me some feedback. They'll give me some direction. I'll figure, you know, in a two years, I'll rush and get this degree and then go to dental school. So I applied to Columbia, I applied to NYU, and I applied to Howard University in uh, Washington, D.C. And then I had to take the DAT, which was, which was totally just bizarre for me. A dental admission test, what's on that? So I took a Stanley Kaplan class and um, wanted to have everything done by, you know, the spring so that I could apply for the September so I could get my rejections in August. So, I, of course, I got my first letter from Howard University and they were like, oh, we want well-rounded, you know, students, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, didn't even read the rest of the letter. I was like, okay, there's no direction. It's not telling me what I need to get into here. Trash. About a week later, I got a, a letter from Columbia, and they said, we loved your letter. We looked at your GPA. We're putting you on the wait list for September. Well, I was just happy as a pig, and you know what? I was so thrilled. I was like, I got waitlisted for Columbia University. I was super excited, and they set me up with an interview. The very next morning, I got a letter from NYU with an acceptance, and I just, I was dumbfounded. Uh, and both schools asked for, for me to come and interview, and they were like, within a week apart. So, called my mother. She was in Barbados on vacation because I needed money. <laughs> I wanted to give her the good news. Um, it was just like, and she was just like, oh, I don't know. How much is it? Da, 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 da. I have to Western Union it. I'm not near a bank. So I called my aunt in New Jersey and she met me in New York. She put me up in a hotel for two weeks. And um, I figured, you know, hey, I'm in New York for two weeks. Called up a bunch of friends. I was like, I'm going to have the biggest party because I know they're going to reject me at Columbia, NYU. I'm going to see how that interview goes, but I, you know, I'll be, I'll be fresh and ready for that one. And so basically I went to Columbia. It was very professional, very nerve wracking, round table. They said, we'll let you know in two weeks. It was like super happy. I got the interview. They gave me an outline basically of what most students have when they come to the school, like their GPAs, what classes they're looking for, which I had basically none because I was just a biochem major. Had all the science, but none of the English, none of like the humanity classes that I needed. So I figured it's a no-go, but I know. I went to NYU and believe it or not, no interview process at all. I, I went in. They had a group of students there to show me the campus. We walked around the campus. I was ecstatic. Went in and they said, look, we have only room for three exceptional students that we grant, you know, admission to without an undergraduate degree. My mouth dropped. Not because I got in, but because he said exceptional. I was like, what? <laughs> If he only knew what I was doing last night, I would not be exceptional. So I needed to basically sign on the dotted line, and I did, and started in September. 
Did you end up having to finish an undergraduate degree before no, starting? I started immediately three weeks later. Oh, so I have no undergraduate degree. Yeah. Do you think that maybe you were underestimating yourself, so that when somebody else is saying that you're exceptional, did you see that at all in yourself? I didn't, and I still don't. But I felt as though this was just one of those opportunities, one of those chances where I got a slide. My my grades were were great, but. I was at two universities. I just feel that it was just one of those just rare occasions. So I just have never looked back, have always known that that was the right decision. And, you know, here I am now. So you go to dental school and mm-hmm. tell me about the, the experience of, of being in dental school. Well, it was tough. You know, going from an, uh, a place where I'm working full-time or part-time, I'm taking a few classes, it's an easy A, to just being under the gun of dental school. It was really tough. And I didn't have money, so I needed to work full-time. So the competition was real, and I was doing my best to stay at the top of the game. So graduated in the 10%, but I didn't graduate at the top of the 10%. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was top really 10% tough. Top 10% still it really good. Really Did you tough. doubt yourself at all during it? It was just, I didn't doubt myself. It was just tough. I mean, I worked full-time at night. What um, kind of jobs were you working for? I was a bartender. So I worked full-time at night. And then I went full-time to school in a day. When did you study? Um, Well, I studied right after class. Okay. Yeah. And I compensated for that because I saw myself as my full-time job is school. And working every night is my nightlife. So I went in. I Music was playing. Everyone was dancing. I was serving drinks. I had lots of friends. So that's how I balanced it. I balanced it as if I'm going out every night. <laughs> and during the day, I have to be really serious about school. And the good thing is, you know, when you're behind the bar working and you have class all day, you're not drinking. So you're like, I can't have a drink. I'm going to be exhausted. So you're still living in the moment of that fun factor. And then you, you dive in. The other thing is... In that, you meet all these great people from New York City's. All the all the performing arts students do the same thing. They're working at night. They're dancing all day. You get to meet all these am- amazing people from Broadway. So yeah, so your life was much richer than just the than just the school. Yeah. So at some point, school's gonna come to an end, and I believe dentistry is one where you you roll from school into a residency. Oh yeah, yeah residency. <laughs> so t- tell me about that transition into into residency. How do you get a residency and how do you transition also from being a bartender to being a resident? Well, I would say that the bartending job paid a lot more than the residency job. And I had no clue that that would happen. So I, I graduated. I applied to a match program in Washington, D.C. and one in Brooklyn. What's a match program? Um, so every medical and dental student applies for, um, on a sheet, all of your top residencies. So you usually apply for five, and you send them out 
to the residency programs, and then a secret someone ranks you. So that's the way the match works. But everyone doesn't do a residency in dentistry. So it's an option. A lot of people that uh, would go for a postgrad degree in oral surgery or to be an orthodontist, they would skip the match program because they would go straight into a postgrad um, degree or they would go and work for their uncle or their brother-in-law that was a dentist, and they would do their training there. So at that time, and still today, many dentists don't do residencies. I, being goal-oriented, I was like, oh, no, I'm doing a residency because that's the right thing to do, and that's what the, the best students do. So I, I, I got matched in a residency in Brooklyn, New York, which I was happy because I had a bunch of friends that lived in Brooklyn. I then moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn and, again, hated the residency program. It was fast-paced, which I did like. But the doctors and the nurses had such an ego. It was shocking. You know, did it have you questioning even your decision about being a dentist well, it definitely had me question whether or not I would stay in a hospital setting. I mean, you're dealing with emergencies, broken jaws, lacerations, facial injuries as a dentist in a residency program in a hospital. And I felt as though many of the, the staff felt so above many of the patients that it really... It really turned me off. And that combined with another big facility, sort of like the biotech job. It's a machine and it's going and could I manage that machine, which was, again, for me, tough. And almost you're just a cog then in that yeah, machine. You're just caught up into procedural. Your job is to fix the broken jaw. You know, your job is not to figure out who broke the jaw. Is the person going back to a place where they'll have another broken jaw? So it was very, a very big disconnect for me. That created a lot of stress. So I needed to balance that out. And the way I balance everything out is always more work. So I had a friend that Stanley Harris that graduated three years earlier than me from NYU. He had a beautiful office. In Brooklyn Heights, tree-lined street, top of the line. So he said, hey, you know what? When you're not working, come over here and I'll train you. How to deal with private practice because the residency never shows you how to deal with emotion, with stress, and all of these things that are coming from the patient, not your own, but what your patients bring to you each day. So he's like completely anal retentive and a neat freak. So I fit right in. I just, you know, <laughs> I loved it. I was just like, it's so organized and clean. And so the rest of my residency, that, that year and a half was a breeze because I balanced it out by going there three times a week. Uh, was it an option to leave the residency completely and get your training with him like the people who 
would go to a family practice or did you have to stick with the residency? No, I, I could have left at any time, but that was just not my way of thinking. Still, even to this day, I feel like if I start a program or I start something, I should at least finish it because oftentimes you find that you do pick up all of this knowledge. I mean, at the private practice, I would have never learned how to repair a broken jaw because you break your jaw, you go to the hospital. You get into a car accident, you end up at the hospital, you're definitely never going to a, a private practice. So I would, would definitely not have left. I'm so impressed by so much of, of what you just shared. Everything from the idea that I'm going to stick it out because I'm still going to learn something. Yeah. And also the piece of there are other ways for me to manage that stress, like create a counterbalancing force, mm -hmm. as opposed to managing the stress by, say, quitting. Right. So the residency finally comes to an end. You're enjoying the private practice. Yes. What did you do? What was your next move? So my next move was um, um, Stanley Harris helped me set up um, a private practice of my own. How do you find patience as a new dentist out on your own? Well, that was really, really, really tough. But I knew so many of the performing artists from working in the bar scene Get that I, I worked with um, a, um, this modeling agency, Wilhelmina Modeling Agency. They started to send me a bunch of patients and act students, you know, like uh, the NYU students that were in the performing artists. So they would send me a lot of patients to do just like, you know, small things. They would pay me in cash. However, it was not enough money to pay my student loans from NYU. So what I did was um, there was a program, and the program was like um, a loan repayment program. You know, hey, for every two years you work in an underserved area or a health center that needs you, we will give you two years of your student loans back. What I did was I looked at the listing of the underserved areas, they were all in Brooklyn in my neighborhood. So I was like, I was like, what? I was like, okay, so this is something, it's two train stops away. So I applied for that, worked there and worked part-time at my private practice from about 6 p.m. to 11 p.m. at night. I thought I would stay two years, but I, I actually loved the health center. I ended up staying six years. Even even though the loan repayment stopped after two years, it's just like so many of those health centers really needed dentists. So I, I stopped one health center. I would go two blocks down, and then I would jumble it because my practice was growing. So I needed to less work less in the, the health center, but I still worked in those health centers for, for four more years. I just loved it. Was that work you were doing for free? No, no. They give you a great pay, a great salary. Even, even when you do loan repayment, you still get a salary. Oh, and the, interesting. And, and the state okay. then pays your student loans off. So it was it was a, a wonderful opportunity, and it was a humbling experience, which taught me to be more compassionate. So, and you know, you you see your work is really needed. You feel uh, gratification, instant gratification. So. Which is what you'd been looking for from the time that you were mismatched in the bio lab back <laughs> exactly. as, a, as an undergrad. Yeah. So why didn't you stay in that nonprofit 
sector? The thing is, when my private practice started growing, and I am a little bit of a manic neat freak. So when my, my private practice started going, growing in Manhattan, it was very easy to just organize everything to get the best results you need. In dentistry, it's not an exact science. So even if you do your best, you end up doing, redoing things or it doesn't turn out right, but you have so much more control in a private practice setting than in a health center. And you make so much more money. So I figured if I went to private practice and stuck with private practice, I could do so much better in terms of donations, in terms of fundraising, in terms of giving away more money resources to things that I believed in as opposed to to trying to give more service. There's so many people coming out of dental school that also could use that job that would step themselves up that ladder. So I needed to figure out how I was going to be more effective and give more of myself and do more due diligence in life. I I love that. I love that. Another question for you about when you were doing both the private practice and Mm -hmm. the um, working at at the clinic, knowing how important your social life is for you. How were you achieving work-life balance while you were doing those two jobs? Well, New York City, everyone works excessively, and they party hard. So it was very easy. It's unlike California, things begin at 1 a.m. You could go out and not have a drink and dance all night. It was sort of like a a gym workout. So it was it was a very easy work life balance. So you're making the decision to double down on your private practice, uh, which was in New York. Mm-hmm. We're sitting together in San Francisco, and I know you have a practice out here. Why did you decide to not stay with your practice in New York? What caused you to leave that and come to San Francisco? I would first say it was weather. And second, weather, and third, weather. So I was totally over the New York City harsh winters. I had, at that point, had a place in Miami. And so I was balancing between, am I going to move to Miami? Am I going to move to San Francisco? Where is my next step? I knew in terms of dentistry, you can't wait until my age now in the mid-50s to relocate. So I knew at that time, I was like, I love my brownstone in Brooklyn. I love my friends, but do I want to be 70 here? You know, and the answer was no. And then I met um, a partner and he lived in San Francisco. So that was an easy sway to say, okay, that's another green light to go to San Francisco. So I, I packed it up and sold my practice to a, a friend of mine and sold my brownstone and bought a place in San Francisco and moved out here. Were you nervous about setting up a practice here? What was, what was your plan and how did you stay confident while making that kind of a move? Oh, well, I'm, I'm never quite confident. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty humble and I, I get all worked up and nervous, but I'm, I'm, I'm extremely organized. So even though the move was quick, it was well thought out. 
my whole life has been spent moving. I went to basically eight or nine different schools growing up. I Change is welcome. It doesn't create that much stress for me. And what was your plan then professionally um, once you got out to San Francisco? I went up a private practice. Has it been smooth sailing since then? Mm, nothing's been smooth sailing, but I would say that my experience in San Francisco has been the best in my entire life. Even the ups and downs of life. When I moved here, I was just gun ho I was geared towards making things happen. A little after that, I started to have like this little doubt about whether I should go into solo practice by myself or whether I should go into group practice. I knew I wanted to deal with a group practice. I knew I wanted that uh, community, that, that tribe. And 10 years later, in 2013... I was just sidelined, sideswiped, like T-boned, because that's when I started to have tremors in my leg, started off with going to work and going coming from the gym, and my leg is just shaking all day. And then I was just like, oh, my God, maybe I injured a muscle. You know, maybe I didn't have enough potassium. Maybe I didn't drink enough water. Slowly but surely, the tremors started in my shoulder, and then started coming down to my arm. And it was it was disheartening. It was shocking. So I was like, what the hell is going on? Knowing, too, that steadiness of your hands is essential to the work that you're doing. Did you feel that this was something that you had to keep secret? Were you telling others? How were you managing this thing happening to your body that has such great implications for the work you're doing? Well, initially, I thought I had a a muscle injury because it wasn't painful. It was just the shaking on on my left side. So I was like, oh, well, it's just an injury. And then temporary. And and I'm ambidextrous. So I would then work with my right hand and I would rest my left hand as I worked which was working for me. And uh, then I said, you know, let me go to my doctor and figure out what's going on because I would start to freak out when my, my left hand started to shake or my left arm. And my doctor told me, oh, you have familiar tremors. You know, and I was just like, what? And I was like, what the hell is that? Familial tremor? Yes. Okay. Like, like a family trait tremor. So I said, what? I said, no. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I must have some kind of back injury. Shortly after that, I started to get tremors in my right shoulder. So then, not knowing what it was, I had then went to work, spoke with my office manager, spoke with the other doctors, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to see patients because I have this back injury because that's what I really thought it was. I was like, I got some kind of back injury. Maybe I'll need back surgery. So went to Stanford and then ended up going to the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And the diagnosis was like a pendulum. You have pre-Parkinson's. You have a slip disc. You have, it was just all over the map. Even one doctor was like, well, you know, it's psychological stress. And because you're doing all of these things, you're creating this ball of stress. 
And the stress is basically tearing down your, your myelin sheaths, your nerve fibers. So you're, you're shaking. Then I had one doctor that says, you know, other than the shaking, I don't see anything. I think you're just faking a disability claim. I mean, it was all over the map, literally. And um, so I was getting medicine for, for pre-Parkinson's and taking that every day. It was just like a really horrible experience. So obviously I couldn't see patients. I'm not at work most days. The other doctors are holding it together. Patients are asking, where's Dr. Watson? Where's Dr. Watson? They're like, oh, he's out with this, you know, injury or all kinds of things because am I going to come back to work? And if I come back to work and I have Parkinson's, no one will see me. No matter what medications I take, if I have familiar tremors, no one's going to see me. If it's a psychosis, definitely they're not going to see me. So it was just this gray, horrible curveball. Was this also, in addition to giving you the tremors and therefore feeling like your body was under attack, did your identity also then feel under attack in the sense of, I'm a dentist? And- oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, it was not just my identity. I don't have an undergraduate degree. <laughs> I have nothing to fall back on. I have never really, until dentistry, had a permanent direction or position or job. I can't be a CEO. I can't lecture. I don't have anything else to fall back on. So it was not just my identity that was ruined. It was the whole practice in my, at that time, I was like, how can I sell the practice? How can I get rid of people that I know their families, I'm helping support a network of people. So it was just very depressing. How did you work through this? Well, after spending about a month at the Mayo Clinic, they stripped me of all medication. Oh, Let me step back a little bit. Before this, I decided that I was going to go on this gigantic health kick, which was absolutely the wrong thing to do. So I stripped alcohol away, no caffeine. I didn't have carbs. I was going to get acupuncture. I was trying to do all this holistic stuff. But when I got to the Mayo Clinic, I realized when I talked to the physicians, that made everything worse. Because now I'm taking all the wrong meds. I'm starving myself. I'm doing all these wrong things. And so my body is just was just freaking out, so the tremors got worse. But anyway, after about a month at the Mayo Clinic, stripped away everything, my physician there told me, she goes, you have familiar tremors. And all you have to do is take these heart um, beta blockers, these heart medication, and a few other medications that are going to bring down your rate, your heart rate, and you will be able to manage all of this. How many years had gone by? I think you said it was 2013 that you first started to experience the tremors in your legs. Where are we? 2015. So two years you've been... Two years. I Two years, I didn't see any patients, almost three. Not just Nazi patients, but I was in this gray gloom of what the hell is going on. 
And um, when I got that, that again, first and last diagnosis, I was like happy as hell. I actually went right back to my physician. I like basically made up with him. I was like, I'm so sorry. Years ago, you told me it was familiar tremors. And I, and I did all of this stuff, just denial, just denial that it can't happen to me. So yeah, I it was two years, almost three years later that then I, I started to pull myself together and then uh, work out with my manager and other dentists at my office, my new role in helping manage and balance the office. So this is interesting to me. So 2015, you're starting to hear it's these familial tremors. You can get them under control, which almost makes it sound like you could go back to practicing, but you actually decided to focus on managing the firm. Yes. Tell me about that decision. So this is is a a, a little embarrassing, but (laughs) what happened was during the time that I was out of work and not micromanaging everyone, the office did better. <laughs> the numbers went down a little because my contributing dental work wasn't there, but the entire office as a whole became much better, much more round, much more cohesive. So it was a learning lesson for me that, that you know, things can go well. Step back, listen, be quiet. Be compassionate. Learn a little something. And so is that what you're doing now, managing the practice? Are you also seeing patients now? No, No, I don't see patients. So once you get a diagnosis of pre Parkinson's tremors, my license immediately is on ice. And there's nothing you can do to... I am in such a good space with managing and and things like that and just being healthy and stress-free that I don't feel like I should do that. You're happy. Yes. You're happy. And so now there is another part to this story that I want to be sure we touch on, which is that somewhere along the way, you developed a side hustle with your own toothpaste company. Tell me how that came about and um, how you got into that. Ever since I lived in New York and I worked at those health centers, I told you I always try to create um, every year one or two things that I donate to time or money or something like that. So in San Francisco, HIV, AIDS, homeless issues, those are the heavy issues that uh, have dominated San Francisco. And and this was actually right around the time that I was initially diagnosed. I was also thinking about how to create something positive that I could work on to take my mind away from what was happening. So my alter ego is always work more instead of work less. So I figured, hey, if I do this toothpaste thing, and it takes off even marginally, then I can use some of the profits from that to donate. And so I worked with a company in Utah, and they helped me formulate the ingredients that I wanted for the toothpaste. So I tweaked it. I love that this is bringing back in your chemistry background, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Brought it right back in. So, I mean, that's what I, but my default, what I fell back on was the chemistry couple more questions for you. I call this the lightning round. A few questions I like to ask everybody. Mm -hmm. 
What would you say is the smartest career move that you made, whether on purpose or by accident? Buying real estate. Buying real estate by far has been the smartest move I've ever made financially. You know, as a student in New York, I bought real estate. I was a student in Boston. I bought a little apartment, came out here. It's helped to create this amazing building block of wealth that then gives you the opportunity to do more. So financially, emotionally, I think the Mayo Clinic experience was something that redirected my entire life. It redirected all all things that stress me, which don't stress me. It redirected all thoughts of compassion. It redirected all thoughts of family care and taking care of friends. And it's it was just basically a, an amazing experience. I don't I don't know if I can say that of course <laughs> you know you can. linked up to the Mayo, but it was it was an amazing experience. And that was really the the time that you went there to find out what was wrong with you mm-hmm. physically, but you took away from it this infusion on who you wanted to be as a person in your life. Yeah. That's powerful. Yep. It helped me forgive everyone. If you could have one do-over, what would it be and why? I hate to go back here, but not to sell the real estate that I sold. If you get some real estate and you're not retiring, if you can hold on to it, you should. I owned a place in Manhattan and a place in Miami that would have been off the charts right now. I could have sold that and done like philanthropy work or something like that. So I don't know. That's what I would say. If you could give one piece of career advice to your younger self, what would you go back in time and tell Marcus? Don't be so damn manic. Had I been a little less crazy earlier in life, I think I would have been able to tie in a little more compassion. I was just always on such go, 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 go. So I would say, pull myself back and think about the people that are around you to give a little bit more or to listen a little bit more. And so how do you define success? I wrote this, this success thing years ago. I was, I was in Connecticut And a friend of mine said, how does everyone define success? And she says, I don't want anyone to to say it. I want you to think about it. And she says, we're going to have, you know, dinner. And tomorrow when we get up, I want to just have you write it on the card. I'm not going to read it. No one will see it. And so I wrote down. And what year was this? 95, 96. So I wrote this and I said, freedom to allow yourself setbacks, failures, no's, and to be able to find happiness with the lows. When I wrote that, I was thinking about graduating from school and what my position would be and um, how many no's or whatever I would get from, from these residency programs and and just how I was going to spin it so that I wouldn't be completely washed out. That's what I wrote down, and I still feel like it works for me. I'm happy to hear it works for you. But what's also interesting is how wise it was 
for what you were going to be experiencing in your life. And we all have our ups and downs and highs and lows. So maybe we all would experience that. But as you read that, I thought you wrote that in 1995 and it fits exactly to the story that you just shared with us. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. A quick epilogue. If you're interested in learning about Marcus's dental practice or trying his toothpaste, there are links on our website, careercurves.com. While there, you can find a full transcript of this episode, past episodes, and resources to help you in your career. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll subscribe and tell your friends. Finally, be sure to like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening.